had a pretty bad concussion over a year ago. So oh. I try to, uh, like, whenever I can avoid staring at a screen. <laughs> Is the concussion snowboard related? No biking. Um, mountain biking. Oh, okay. Was like going, was in the highest gears. It was like quite a flat, like, downhill section. Uh, was like pedaling on the cranks and it's going through like a pretty wide corner and I don't know I was just not like that concentrated clipped the pedal on a rock went over the handlebars uh, and kind of landed on my shoulder and then you know it comes like a whip kind of where you slam your head sideways mm -hmm. into the ground slid a couple of meters and then went head first into like a head-sized rock that oh. I pushed pushed in front of me for like a meter um yeah mate you must have had some speed up wow i had yeah i had pretty good speed uh, i too like totally changed the way i work pretty much like working wow. half an hour just getting up for 10 minutes getting some fresh air and then back at it yeah that's probably quite healthy anyway yeah <laughs> it's, to, be honest. <laughs> to, to be honest like yeah i work maybe in total, like less hours per day than I used to. But I feel like my productivity has not really suffered. Or in the beginning, before I learned how to like live with it and adapt, it was, mm -hmm. it was really hard. But uh, now I feel like it, it's working pretty well, even though I, I don't really work that long hours anymore. You're managing a snowboard brand and uh, a new boots coming out. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you're doing too bad. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's it's been uh, it's been pretty hectic. Yeah. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to another Backdrop FFS podcast with me, Andy Beal, and we got Pete Coombs here from the Backdrop crew. Hello, Pete. Hi, Andy. You all good, mate? I'm all good. Thank you. Good. Thank you. And um, today we're joined by Hampus Sederholm, who's the CEO of uh, Furberg Snowboards, um, which has a reputation for innovation in the industry and also founder of Key Equipment, uh, which has some exciting news about uh, product releases coming up. So, yeah, Hampus yeah. is right at the center of... Uh, a lot of innovation it's going to be a he's a busy boy how are you hampus yeah thanks a lot yeah nice to meet you and you and you Good, and I'm so, doing yeah. Well. yeah i don't know kind of where to start there's so much going on but uh, maybe you know what's your okay we're all into split boarding here so you know can you give yeah, us right. a potted history of how you how you ended up there and and then how you got into all this innovation yeah right no that's a good question uh I, just like most people who are into splitboarding, of course, started out with uh, snowboarding first. Um, I was born in southern Sweden in a region where we don't really have a lot of snowfall. Um, so, I mean, like, just like most other people in that region who are into snowboarding or skiing, we, uh, I went to the Alps uh, with my parents as a kid. That's how I got, like, really introduced to snowboarding. Um, so, in the beginning, you know, it was like this weekly or trip once a year week long mm. and like a long bus like ride a, or long drive was it long drive uh, it's like yeah. a 15 hour drive down to uh, 
Innsbruck is pretty much the area where we normally went. Axamolitzum, yeah. which is like one of the small resorts around there. Really nice place. I can definitely recommend if anyone yeah, okay. is planning a trip. Um, but yeah, so that's really where I got started. Um, then after high school, I decided to uh, go down to the Alps and stay there for a, for a full winter before uh, moving on to, uh, to college. Nice. So I, I went down to Switzerland to Engelberg. Engelberg, okay. Yeah, really nice mountain in the Swiss Alps. Um, it's a great place. Um, you don't have too many groomed runs around there. And like two kind of main peaks within the resort and just a lot of open space in between, which is all super easy access accessible. So yeah, it's it's got a kind of epic reputation for sort of big off piece, but isn't it yeah. isn't the resort actually fa fairly family orientated? Yeah, probably. I mean, it's definitely not like a party town. Mm. Um, but to be honest, if, if you want to go and just ride pieces, like they're definitely way better resorts. Like these are kind of more on the narrow side, also okay. on the steeper side. So no, nah, I, I would argue maybe not. I mean, as a, as a family, it's nice because it's a, it's a very charming village and you have, you still have everything, but it's not too big. So in that way, it's like good family oriented, but the riding mm -hmm. is maybe not that good for a family but yeah anyway like that the free riding is amazing around there so yeah. i'm, I'm quite really... astounded that your um your family drove from sweden to the alps <laughs> why, why didn't they go to norway or, yeah. or up to i mean if, in, that's in the thing like if if you live in southern sweden you um to actually go to water for example i think that's almost like a 12-hour drive Mm. Oh, okay, and so it's the same. Right. Yeah. So, no, you know, it's almost the same. Um, Austria is cheaper than Sweden mm -hmm. okay. for skiing. So, and I would argue you have higher quality of, of skiing as well. And then also like driving up north in the middle of winter is, yeah, it's beautiful in its own way, but it's kind of tempting to go south where you normally have nice weather, yeah. still yeah. a lot of snow a bit more elevation and... as well mm. yeah totally mm -hmm. and did you did you start skiing and then kind of move to snowboarding you've been snowboarding the whole time yeah i was skiing until well i think i tried snowboarding for the first time when i was maybe somewhere around eight nine i liked it but i didn't like get hooked straight away uh, i think i'm one of those people who I can be quite a slow learner in the beginning. I'm quite methodical, like in most things I do. So I was like, yeah, this has potential to be really fun. But you know, I already could ski. So I think the first mm -hmm. week I split like doing 50-50, but I put in the hard work of like trying to learn snowboarding because I it looked super yeah. fun. But then after, I think the second year, uh, I switched over completely to snowboarding and it's like, okay. I'm starting to get a hang of it and this is this is such an amazing feeling yeah yeah uh, yeah my uh, my start at snowboarding was a bit rough i was actually uh, i grew up in new zealand and um all oh, right 
Yeah, I was so uh, I th I started both of them really late. I was probably twenty before I uh, did my first skiing. Um, mm -hmm. A mate had seen these uh, snowboards in a rental shop there, and so we 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 gave that a go. And uh, yeah. but the new piece that was open was beginner slope. It was rock hard. It was almost ice. This beginner slope, and you know, within twenty minutes, I'd caught an edge. And then slammed my hands into the ground and uh, and um, broken broke a wrist there. So oh, that was yeah, fifteen not minutes. a great start. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then I went back to skiing. I think mean, I was pretty rubbish at that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, first season in in Val when I came over here and uh, ah cool. I was still rubbish at skiing, but really wanted to get up on the high stuff. And I just yeah, so I gave the snowboarding a go, and it just kind of. It just came within days. Um, right, cool. Yeah, so it's... I mean, that's another amazing place. I've I've never been there, but uh, I have a couple of friends who spent like their winters there. So uh, definitely, definitely seems like a good place. And then um, the splitboarding came along at some point. Yeah. So I ended up staying two winters in um, Engelberg. Um, after that, I went to uh, so to spend one. This was really like the so that, that was about the third winter I was supposed to go away and because the Alps and I was like, yeah, what am I gonna do with my life? I probably need to find some kind of solution where I can live in a place like more like year round and um, so and still be able to snowboard because uh, I felt like I needed to start studying and yeah you know do grown-up stuff um, <laughs> so right before I went to Saint-Chavalier France that winter I decided to sign up for a German course that was over a full year it was actually an exchange program with a university in Gothenburg and the university in Innsbruck so I signed up to that and then I went down to France and spent the winter. And after the winter, I moved to, to Innsbruck, which is really like a nice town, a student town, probably like 130,000 people live in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's right in the middle of like pretty big mountains. So you can, you can have quite a, like a normal life, so to say, and still mm -hmm be really close to some some great great snowboarding i built a snowboard in uh, innsbruck on a, like a weekend course once you, ah. you heard of um, spur art yeah i know yeah you just rock up to their workshop and you sort of had a pre like meeting consultation with them and told them what you want and you get there and it's sort of almost yeah, drawn, yeah. drawn out for you and you cut it all out and it's really cool actually all right and so it's you, a great town like to... you say it's a really cool town and it's a uh, it's really connected, isn't it? It's like easier to on the train to get out to resorts. Yeah. And there's even one straight out of Innsbruck. There's like a cable car yeah. up to a mini little place, isn't there? Yeah, it's a cool place. Exactly. And I mean, even this like mini little place has some really cool free riding terrain. Okay. That's, um, it's yeah. deep. Actually, it's one of the few places where you have proper spines forming in Europe. Okay. Um, so really, really cool mountain. But uh, it's also what, what like, was it called again? That one's called uh, Nordkette. That's it, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, since the cable car is like going right from the city center, it can get pretty, pretty busy on a powder day. 
yeah, I bet. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't, I don't go there too often, um, but uh, it's a cool place. Definitely. So, you, are you actually living in Innsbruck now? No, not anymore. I uh, moved to California a year ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally know that place. Is that yeah. where you're calling us from? Yep. Ah, nice. It's a bit of time difference. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I had well, no idea. Uh, I thought, um, looking on the website, the boards and the boots and everything, I just presumed you were European-based. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like, the company is European. Um, both Furberg Snowboards and Key Equipment. Uh, in the case of uh, Furberg Snowboards, anyway, like, going back to uh, just having moved to Innsbruck, I... Uh, Decided to start studying. I did a, the German program for for half a year. I felt like that was good enough to get me to the level of German that I found like useful. I could have like a normal conversation like we have right now in English. My writing was maybe not perfect. Grammar is a little bit tricky, but I spoke much more like the local dialects. That's what you what you speak when you speak to people around there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I decided to start studying product development. Mm. And after one semester, I found out that Daniel, a guy that I met in uh, Switzerland, had just started uh, a little snowboard brand. Or at that point, he had just like made a couple of prototypes, starting selling a few boards to friends and so on. Mm-hmm. I was like, hey, this shape looks really interesting. Uh, I should just contact this guy. So I sent him a message and asked if he needed any help with product development or anything else. Um, so I started started working with him. In the beginning, it was more or less just like, what do you call it? Like goodwill or like, yeah. I hope that like, yeah, let's try to start working together. If things work out, then maybe we can do something together. And uh, so I worked for one year, like made a website, started doing social media, um, still let him do like most of the product development at that point. Cause I mean, he was kind of his baby at that point, like he had just started, but uh, yeah, of course, a lot of opinions and discussions back and forth uh, about how to do things, but uh, it was definitely like his main responsibility um, mm-hmm. back then. But no, so I managed to do like quite a nice combination where I lived in a town where you can go writing a lot. I studied product development. Uh, I did it from a Swedish university, actually. So I only had to go to Sweden to do the actual exams. Most other things were done online. Mm-hmm. So I had a nice combination where I had like a lot of things, not a lot of things that I did for work. I could later on use for what I studied and the other way around so it didn't really feel like it wasn't too hard to do both at the same time because they they both kind of benefited from each other Mm. Um, so that was a good setup did that for two years um then at that point the company started taking off more um so I decided to put in like full-time work this was probably, no, that's probably eight years ago. Might be even more. Yeah, about eight years ago, um, I moved on to uh, to working full time uh, on the brand. Mm. 
in the beginning a lot of work not a lot of uh, <laughs> not much of a salary you know how it is for most people like when you start something totally new that's, startup yeah that, that's how it is um but nah that was that was a lot of fun mm. so would you would you say that Ferberg's a, a european brand then or is it a scandinavian a, brand yeah. i mean yeah it's a scandinavian brand so uh daniel uh, my colleague he is he's swedish as well okay um, but he lives in norway right. since probably 10 years or something um so we decided to set up the company in norway uh for a couple of reasons they have a really good like startup um, culture over there where you can get a little bit of help from the government in the beginning like some tax deductions and stuff like that to get like businesses going yeah um, well, so we good. got a lot of help and also like expertise from other people who have like been in business before and so on that you so you basically can get like a network of um, people with different type of expertise to to help you out a little bit in the beginning Okay. So we did that. We had that help for almost two years, I think, which was a great source in the beginning. And that also yeah. worked out really well, even though I was not based in Norway, uh, just like we're doing right now. Zoom calls back then, it was probably Skype. So this is this is an area of Norway called Songdal. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's good. And, Songdal. I mean, yeah. on, on the... On the website, on the Ferberg website, it says there's like 20, uh, what am I saying? 20, I was going to say 24 hour, but I mean, sort of 12 months of the year riding potential around. Pretty that. much with, with a bit of driving and mm -hmm. the right motivation. I mean, there are glaciers not too far away. So right. you actually yeah. have the option to go up and test stuff like stuff like really late in the season or like really early in the season. I mean, that's pretty um, handy for product development if you can yeah. take that out of the shop and get it on some snow any day of the year. Totally. And then on top of that, like since I was located in Austria, we had the glaciers, some of them that are open like all year round. So we definitely had like access to to riding for yeah, pretty much all year round, mm. um, mm -hmm. which is good. I mean, also, especially as a small brand, sometimes you're maybe not the highest priority at the factory in the beginning. Um, so you maybe get your samples or prototypes a little bit later. Um, but and this way we managed to stay like pretty flexible and be able to, yeah, yeah. go out maybe later than most people would, but to try it out, make sure everything is working. Yeah. And so were you getting, were you getting the boards made in Austria? And yeah. they are produced in Poland. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, Austria is quite a center for um, uh, board manufacturing and ski manufacturing. I, I think. Yeah, there are actually uh, a few few factories. Uh, there's the mothership from Capita. Mm -hmm. It's in Austria. Yeah. Not sure if Burton still has any production in Austria. It used to have at least. Um, not I kind of think that they bought, bought it all back to the US, but I could be wrong about that. Okay. I, I only think they did a prototyping in the US, not the actual oh, board production. But maybe. still, I think they have quite a quite a big like prototype. Um, yeah, I've been to the factory in Burlington, Vermont. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really cool factory, actually. Ah, oh, you've it's been classic. there. Yeah, yeah. I went on a yeah, cool. on a sort of tour around there, but it was really funny because I was trying to take photos 
and mm-hmm. I was sort of shadowed. It was almost like being in China, you know, and the secret police. Was sort of, <laughs> this guy kept jumping out and saying, no, God, you can't take a photo of that. Top secret. Top secret. <laughs> no, not that either. Not that. And I was like, oh, my God. That's cool. Yeah, it was no, really I fun. think they used that a lot for, like, prototyping facilities. So, yeah, probably a lot of secrets <laughs> going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. They had, they had one snowboard that had a really massive sort of core at the, at the nose. It just went huge, like the sidewall. And I was like, right. what's that for? And he's like, I can't tell you. Can't tell you. <laughs> Top, Top secret. secret. I've never seen it in production, so it obviously didn't work. Well, it was probably <laughs> a manufacturing fault. Yeah. Let's try not. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, Furberg Snowboards. Um, got, a, got a couple of kind of uh, technological things which are quite quite interesting there. I mean, uh, you got a reputation for very long, long sidewall cut. Yeah, like long uh, radius, training radius. Training yeah, radius, exactly. right? So, yeah. um, which kind of makes me think that maybe originally it was designed for sort of big, wide open, big mountain, kind of bombing, bombing down big turns. I mean, that was definitely how it started out. Um, I mean, I would say that back when we started, we were even more of a big mountain brand than we maybe are right now. I mean, there's still, uh, it's it's still a brand that really has a great reputation for big mountain riding. But uh, back mm-hmm. then it was definitely like what we specialized on, like 100%. Um, really long radiuses, um, pretty stiff boards. I think in the last four or five years, we definitely went a little bit less radical. Mm-hmm. I think it's also like a product of where Daniel and I have been riding um, the last few years. Because in, in the beginning, like we both came from riding Engelberg, which is like big mountain, like pretty much the shortest run you have there that you normally do is maybe 800 vertical meters. Um, so the runs are maybe between 800 and 1200 uh, vert you don't have to like cross a single slope or anything it's a big wide open terrain um where you can where you definitely have a big benefit of a board with the longer turning radius mm-hmm. um, but yeah over time like we made them maybe a little bit less radical but still a big difference from what's still considered like standard in the snowboard industry um our big mountain model today has yeah. between 12 and 14 meter radius, depending on the size. Um, standard on free ride boards today, I would say it's around nine meters. So yeah. percentage wise, it's still, uh, it's still a pretty, pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did they, how does it handle on the paste? They still handle pretty well. Like you can definitely pull like Euro carves on them. Yeah. Um, okay. But you have to go faster. Just a bit longer. I mean, yeah. Exactly. I would. I would like to compare it to. Um, I mean, if you've been going with skiers, for example, um, standard slalom ski for the everyday rider probably has around twelve meter radius. Okay. Well. Um, but then if you get a free ride, free ride ski. They have like closer to 20 meter radius. They see there's quite a big like difference percentage wise. Mm-hmm. And if you see someone who's on free ride skis riding these, like you didn't expect them to do like really short slalom turns in that ski. Like you, you do uh, giant slalom turns. And it's kind of the same on uh, on our snowboards. 
uh, it's a free ride board. It's made for built for for speed. Um, and when you go on the slope and really pulls like carves, proper carves there, it's a, it's a bigger turn than if you have a eight, nine meter radius board. Mm, uh, and, yeah. and do you have to make the uh, it more rigid, more of a sort of stiffer board? Not necessarily. Um, I would almost say that for probably somewhere middle or middle to softer among if you compare other like okay. boards that are supposed to be like radical free ride boards some of them are actually quite a bit stiffer than ours and i think that's a product of they have a shorter radius which makes the board a little bit more twitchy um Fine. and you can compensate by making the board a little bit stiffer whereas we can keep the board quite easy to handle like stiffness wise because uh, you already have a good stability from the from the longer cyclic radius you don't really have to overdo the flex um, yeah. of course flex is always a very like personal thing like what you what you like or not mm. um, but i would argue with a longer radius you don't need to build the board super stiff for it to handle yeah uh, speed well yeah, you're not putting like carbon into your into your boards. It sounds like it's you know wood wood core. No. Yeah, yeah. For 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 a couple of reasons, um, I I like the kind of more damp feeling of glass fiber, because mm -hmm. um, when you go free riding, you you're gonna encounter like every type of snow. Um, and you, you usually get a bit of chatter and for that reason I'm not a huge fan of carbon another reason has been um, just environmental impact um, yeah. it's yeah. harder for the factories in general to build boards with carbon and get within the right tolerances of like camber height and so on mm -hmm. um, and just don't feel like it's responsible to have high percentage of boards that are getting scrapped because they don't turn out perfect in production um right, right. is there so, um i mean glass glass fiber by itself i think is kind of recyclable uh i, but I, I don't know is there any recycling yeah. snowboard of snowboards unfortunately it's it's really hard i mean in in one way it's one of the worst like products you can possibly make because you take wood you take epoxy resin you take glass fiber yeah. you take glue plastic steel edges and you glue everything together yeah um i know there are some companies that are working on like trying to find ways to to recycle but there, there hasn't really been any like breakthrough to be honest right. so i feel I like the, the most responsible thing you can do is to build a board that is as sturdy as possible and that just survives a long yeah. time because eventually that board is going to get thrown away and there is no good yeah. way to recycle it so you got to make sure it lasts as long as possible no we need to uh, need to make sure that there's a lot of bars out there so you can eventually put the board up kind of bolt it to the to the to the butt top of the bar right cut some slots in it and hold your glasses in it <laughs> totally yeah i mean upcycling that's another thing um yeah. there's some, yeah i was thinking I furniture you know furniture garden fences but andy you've gone straight yeah. in for booze just oh well i've seen that done a few times i don't need a seat i just need booze i just need something to store my glasses <laughs> there's actually a french 
think it's French longboard company that is like all of their decks are made from um, upcycled snowboards. Uh-huh. Yeah, which which is an interesting oh, wow. idea. You, yeah, yeah. You you don't totally like solve the problem of recycling, but you still give the material that you put into a board um, a longer life. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's probably the, the best thing you can do right now is trying to find ways to to upcycle your product. Yeah. Okay. But it's a big issue for the snow, uh, yeah, for the snowboard and ski industry that yeah. recycling yeah. is not really, it's not really there yet. So just going back to the uh, the boards, you've got the, your, uh, all, you've got the free ride, which has, you know, retains the original kind of really long side cut there. Yeah, and then you've got, exactly. then you've got another board called the All Mountain, which has mm-hmm. a slightly, slightly, as you said, it's, it's still longer than normal, but uh, yeah, but slightly uh, uh, more side cut. So if you were, if you were somewhere in quite technical terrain and you had to kind of jump it around a bit, you know, and um you know, very fast turns, say, you know, mm-hmm. Chamonix Coolwars or some of the Coolwars you're going to find in um, in Norway. Is that is that the board that would, is more suitable for that terrain? I would I would actually still be on the free ride. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe it might be a couple of reasons for it. I'm the kind of person who prefers having one board that I know really well. Yeah. Um, and in a free ride situation, like the how tight you can turn is not necessarily determined by by the side cut radius. Um, especially, let's say you're in a tight you're, you're in tight steep terrain like a couloir. Mm. Uh, people might say that they're like carving down, but I still haven't seen anyone like carving down a forty five <laughs> degree couloir at this point. Yeah. <laughs> not 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 really. <laughs> Oh. Um, I mean, if, if it's like, really, if it's powder, yeah, that's one thing, but yep. in powder, you really don't need like a, a turning radius to, uh, no, no, that's to make a turn at all. Um, and in a situation where you have to do like more of a turn, that is a combination of maybe initiate your turn and dig in the edge. And then at the, towards the end of the turn, especially in steep terrain, you are going to slide the tail a bit. Mm-hmm. In those situations, mm-hmm. I really like having a longer radius because it distributes the pressure along the edge um, in a little different way. You get more pressure between the bindings and a little bit less out in nose and tail, uh, which makes the board really catch-free. So you can easily like go between making a card turn and a more like sliding turn without having the tail hooking, uh, which is very beneficial in uh, steep technical terrain. That's really interesting. So no, I, I wouldn't necessarily go for a shorter radius in a, in a situation yeah. like that. Yeah. The, the shorter radius is maybe more for mountains which have maybe shorter runs where you don't necessarily go super fast, where you want to do a little bit more playful riding when the snow is hard, where you actually like really dig in the edge and make, mm. uh, and actually like really use the, the turning radius without modulating the turn um, mm. by like sliding just like sticking to proper carves and then that's the then the shorter radius is a lot of fun um, okay. but for high speed open terrain or the other spectrum like really steep technical I think the long radius 
can be really yeah, beneficial cool. in both of those that's situations. cool it's really interesting yeah 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 very interesting because the boards are quite quite wide as well aren't they you've got a 165 in the um in the in the free ride and uh that's already 27 across the waist so yeah good I mean, for us big footed another, guys yeah but they were actually not that extreme as you might think when you just look at the numbers first i, I think one thing that the snowboard industry needs to get better at is the, the width in the very center of the board is not super relevant by itself because it's a combination of the of the radius and the width so a, a more accurate number to determine like the width of like how wide it's going to feel or whether it's the right width for your um, shoe size is the width under the back foot because that's like the most critical uh, critical part and since we have a, a longer radius the difference in width between the very center and the very like tip and tail it's not going to be that extreme. Mm -hmm. um, so the width under your feet is actually quite standard, uh, but the nose, like the very last part of the nose and tail is slightly narrower than standard. Yeah. And the very center of the board is slightly wider than standard. Um, that's a, yeah, that's a product of the, of the long radius. Yeah. But oh. we definitely like as as you go up in size, like the one seventy, for example. That's that's a board that we mainly sell to pretty big guys. Um, and of course, we have made that board quite a bit wider to uh, to fit fit bigger people. Normally, yeah. have bigger feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then, of course, with your um, on on the boards, there's there's a, another innovation, which is this uh, floorboard technology yeah which yes. kind of to me just like it's like that's so obvious that just seems like mm -hmm. a, a really yeah a really obvious thing to do but but not many people are doing it i don't know if anyone else is doing no. it and uh for no, the no there, there, there's no one else so what floorboard is uh it's basically a tongue and groove um yeah. on the inner side walls of the board uh so it completely blocks the the vertical play you can have between the board halves in uh, in ride mode uh, which gives a very solid ride feel um it's i'd say it's really close as close as gotten so far to mm. uh feel of a regular snowboard um yeah that's been a huge step for us i feel like it's one the thing that also gave Furberg snowboards a lot of gives a pretty good reputation as a brand that it keeps innovating um, and made a lot of people aware of the brand that probably otherwise wouldn't have because um, mm -hmm. it's some, bringing something new to the industry which i yeah. think is is needed yeah yeah, yeah I mean, so for those um who who don't know what we're talking about it's uh, it's just on the split boards and it's the yeah. where the, the two inner parts of the split board join together there's like a tongue and groove sort of I guess it's made out of the same material as the rails are made from. Um, and how how long is that tongue? That section spans basically over the inserts, uh, the inserts oh. for your, your bindings. Um, as I have my board set up, they span probably like four or five centimeters uh, outside my bindings. I have quite a narrow stance. So even if you have like 
go as wide as you can, you are gonna have a little bit of it uh, outside your bindings, uh, which is something we also experimented a lot with in the beginning, like how over how big of a section of the board you needed to put it. And yeah. we came out, like we came to the conclusion that that's definitely enough because that's the section of the board you have the most pressure. Yeah. Uh, putting it further out in the nose and tail just adds other complications like making it a little bit harder to put the board together without mm -hmm. any real benefits um because then just a short section after where the floorboard ends or tiny groove ends you have the, the split board hooks anyway um which basically give the same effect but on a limited area of the board or section of the board yeah. so there was no reason to try to extend it like any further than that Mm -hmm. The gain mm -hmm. was very minimal, um, but you just run into other issues. Um, and it's yeah. funny, like in the, how it came to, I think probably a lot of brands have been thinking about making something like this, but probably didn't really give it a try. You saw that that's, that's going to be an issue. Like it's probably going to get damaged or it's not going to work with snow or anything. And first time I thought about this was probably yeah, eight years ago or something. And I know that, that was the first time I talked to someone. I was like, that ah, would be interesting to try. But I was also, ah, it's probably not going to work. A couple of years later, Daniel mentioned the same thing. And we were like, hey, we, we, we probably have to give this a try. <laughs> so what I did, I just took my, my old board and took a Dremel and started like just cutting out the slot in my board. Did the same on the other on the other side, on the other ski, so to say. Um, and then glued in a piece of aluminum and took it out for a ride the next day. Like the tolerances and everything I built was was pretty horrible, but I was like, okay. wow, this works. <laughs> Which is nice. Like sometimes you just gotta give it a try and build like a first prototype that is pretty far from how it's gonna end up in production, but still like you gotta see if it has any potential. And I was, I was blown away by how reactive the board became. It's like the whole thing was flexing like one unit instead of two separate board halves that are moving yeah. independently. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been developed by a company, you know, partly in, in, in Norway, which you can imagine is a pretty icy sort of place. Um, ice must, get in the groove when you're when you're walking in walk mode yeah how easy is it to you know to, to clear that so surprisingly often you don't necessarily have to clear it um but i would recommend for anyone to just put that into your let's say your routine uh, we have a scraper tool uh, that you can just have in your pockets or as like a what do you call it like a hole for like a keychain Loop. So you can attach it to a strap on your backpack or like there are a couple of different options to how to make sure you always have it with you. Um, it probably adds like 10 seconds to just clean out both sides of the board. Yeah. Uh, what I've realized is actually like since I started using the scraper tool and the floorboard, I think on average, um, still faster at mounting them to my board than I was before I had the tongue and group because back then I didn't really care. I always just like put the stuff together and then every now and then every fifth or 10th tour or something, 
uh, it was one of the situations where I had to clean anyway, and I didn't. And then you end up like having to take the bindings off and like make sure to clean it again. So right. I'm actually faster transitioning now that I have the tanging group, not necessarily because of the tanging group, but because I just make sure to clean it every time. Yeah, you, you just got a routine. Run into an issue. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, I mean, that's a huge thing in general for like split boarding, like make sure to, to work a bit on your transitions. Yeah. Whether you have a tying groove on your board or not, or yeah, whatever bindings you have, make yeah. sure to like build a routine for yourself, and you're gonna save yourself a lot of time. Yeah, you're absolutely yes. right. And, you know, adding it's... a few seconds, given the the improvement in ride quality that you uh, you're experiencing, it's, mm. it sounds like it's a, a good uh, payoff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when it's really cold, it's good to <laughs> get it done quickly. Because quite often, yeah, you have to totally. Take gloves off, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, no, that, with, with the um, the tongue, is there does it affect the skinning at all? If you're on a sort of icy traverse, no. or not at all. Thing is, like, it, it only sticks out like two, two and a half millimeter, and right. has quite a bit of like distance from um, from the base of the board, like higher up. So you would probably have to skin in terrain steeper than 45 degrees. And you're not going to be skinning if it's that steep, especially not if it's icy. No, so, no, okay. nah, yeah. it's not a, that's also like one of the things I was skeptical about in the beginning. Uh, my, my first prototype was built from, um, the tongue was just made of aluminum, which is much weaker than uh, stainless steel that we use now in production. And on top of that, it was only a 1.5 millimeter thick uh, aluminum piece that I used on a prototype. And I didn't manage to, to damage it or bend it in yeah. two years of touring. And I mean, what we're using now is at least three or four times stronger. Um, so far, we haven't had a, which has actually surprised me, uh, but haven't had a single person uh, manage to bend, to bend it. And now it's been out on the market for three years, I think. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all your boards have this. This is just, just a feature of, of yeah, all of the boards. boards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super. No, cool. in the beginning, I was like, yeah, this is. It's obviously not a problem. Like we really tried it for. I mean, we. I think we. Writing prototypes for three, four years before we decided to release it. That's mm. like, yeah, when it goes mm. into production, you're gonna have now you have like hundreds of boards. Of course, someone is somehow gonna be able to damage it. But uh, I've, I've been surprised <laughs> it hasn't <laughs> hasn't happened so far. Knock on wood. Um, someone, someone will. And and is it yeah. a, a completely separate piece of metal from the from the uh, rail then? Yeah, it's a completely separate piece. Right, okay. Um, what you can do, like if you after a full season you've stepped on rocks and stuff, uh, which I obviously don't recommend you to do <laughs> with any board, but you know it happens. Um, your end of end of season like tuning up your board take out a file and just make sure that the the edge of the of the tongue is like nice and round or doesn't have like any sharp things or anything from like hitting rocks and mm. it's going to be a much smoother uh, experience yeah. you can also take like your the wax that you put on your base just take that and scrape a little bit um on the metal parts and that also makes sure it's like glides yeah. nicely um yeah, the group. Interesting. All right. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I, I kind of, it's really interesting hearing you talk because 
you, you end up in so many different kinds of snow conditions and you sort of mm-hmm. it's always when you get to the top there's always snow somewhere that you don't want it to be or some yeah. ice that's built up even on the chocks or you know i use a spark r and d slide on you know mm-hmm. there's always you have to take them off again and bang them bang, clear them out and get them yeah. so yeah uh, it was kind of you know it's really interesting to hear particularly if you've written it up in Norway and stuff where it is can be cold and it can be very wet snow as well um, yeah because it's obviously maritime um that it's still just doesn't get blocked up and it just clears through quickly and mm. that's really interesting yeah. Mm. yeah but as I said like in general I would recommend people to maybe clean their boards and bindings a little bit more before putting them together because I said like those times when you run into an issue you just end up adding so much time instead of just cleaning it before and putting it together. Uh, doesn't take many seconds, but just make sure that you never run into issue where you're going to be standing on the top of the mountain for too long. Just depends how patient the skiers are that you're with, because they're always ready before you anyway. <laughs> yeah, you just have to be faster on the way up. <laughs> oh, good. I, I get beaten on that yeah. too. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> So, um, so yeah. Speaking of, um, of of innovations, you've got some other other news related to uh, the other company you're involved with, Key Equipment. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, right. So um, we are finally releasing a hard boot splitboard binding or splitboard boot. Um, I wouldn't even really call it a hard boot, to be honest. It's using a lower plastic shell, but the rest of the boot and like right feel is very similar to uh, to a soft boot, um, especially when you're on your toe edge. It has like a sort of a medium stiff flex, I would say, uh, mm-hmm. somewhere around seven, eight out of ten, like, which is quite quite normal for a free ride boot, but not necessarily the stiffest free ride boots out there. Okay. Um, but it's yeah, it's funny. It's quite a long story how how the brand actually started. Um, for me, since I was working with Ferberg Snowboards and been working a lot with yeah, trying to be as innovative as possible, I felt like I had to try hard boots because we had quite a lot of customers asking about it. Mm-hmm. So I got myself a pair of Atomic. Backland, the first year they were released, probably like six years ago or something. All right. Um, started using them. I was like, I was surprised how well it worked. Like it worked much better than I thought it would. I still didn't really enjoy the ride too, but I was like, hey, this actually has potential. Um, so from there I started um, modifying the backlands. Um, for example, I tried to build some kind of a spring system in the back, similar to what uh, Phantom is using. Right, they're uh, linked. Just, a, just a, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like a similar um, solution, just just home built, um, and that seemed to work okay. Um, I tried other um, or boots from other manufacturers um, to try to really like understand what kind of modifications, what worked, what didn't. Um, after a couple of years, I um, found um, a 
face or like a, a shell of a lightweight ski tour boot that I really liked. The, first of all, like the fit um, was great. It had like pretty good heel hold. It was possible to get it really nice and tight around your ankle, um, but it still worked for people with high feet, which is kind of a hard combination. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's like, wow, this, this one has good potential. I managed to figure out who the manufacturer uh, was and I contacted them. And uh, so I went to check out their production, uh, which is in Italy. Um, and yeah, as I was sitting there, like with meeting, trying to explain like the design ideas I had and so on, they were like, yeah, there's another um, a French guy who's been in contact with us. He contacted us a few months ago okay. who wants to do a similar thing. And I was like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to make this work. Um, so I try to convince them to, um, to work with me. Like, yeah. like the contacts I had uh, throughout the industry, like as an example, like, hey, I already know these people. We could work collaborate like together in these ways and I think I have a good market that I can reach out to and so on um and anyway like they, they they seemed interested but like didn't give me any absolute answer or anything yeah, um, think... then a few months uh, later I was at ISPO and uh, a friend of mine from France came over to my booth I was there with uh, Ferber Snowboards and he was like Hey, I think we have a very similar idea. Maybe we should try to work together instead of like working against each other. <laughs> I was like, that sounds amazing. I had no idea that it was that it was you. And this guy, I already knew him since like five years or something at that point. Oh, okay. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. So this guy is uh, his name is Tal. Um, he's one of the pretty much the guy behind the plum binding. Uh, so he's also been working in the industry for a long time. Uh, really good guy with a lot of experience in product development as well. Um, so yeah, that was about a bit over two years ago um, that we started working together. Um, we compared design ideas or like concepts, uh, a boot that we built before and um, yeah. Turned out we had very similar ideas, and uh, from there, and it was actually fairly smooth to uh, develop the boot together. Mm. Didn't have like too many disagreements or anything. That's um, cool. Did it take much convincing of the boot manufacturer to let you? Not as much boot? as I thought. I, I actually have been like in contact with another manufacturer. I'm not going to mention the exact name, but. Um, I had a, a good friend of mine was a team rider for this, this ski brand. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I came in contact with a product manager of the ski tour segment, super nice guy who was really helpful, but unfortunately that didn't work out. They were just like looking at the numbers and it's like, nah, the split board market is too small for us. We're, we're not interested. Mm -hmm. uh, but still it, it was good. I feel like I gained a little bit of experience in just presenting the product and the idea uh, before I found the factory that we're okay. working with right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, well, so, you just you've sort of got their shell of you. You've got an existing shell, and how mm -hmm. 
and they make the whole boot for you or you you sort of buy the shell and then you make the boot i mean how's it working they're actually producing the whole boot for us um the shell is the only thing that we really buy as standard for, for them uh, we've made our own molds for the for the cuff and we have our own flex of the tongue um so yeah we've been able to use the part that is the most expensive thing to develop like that's the thing we haven't talked about but one of the reasons why there hasn't been a split board boot like this released before except for phantom which is mm-hmm. not a really cool brand um now that's that's the fact that the split board market is unfortunately too small and the development costs uh, for making the molds where you which needed to produce the boot is way too high um mm. Can't give it like an exact number, but it, it's close to hundred thousand euros for one size. Oh. Uh, if you want to develop a boot from scratch, you want to sort of prototype it up. Yeah. And the biggest part of that is the mold cost for the shell. Um, and I mean, imagine how many pairs of boots you have to to sell to be able to cover that. It's, mm. it's just not feasible for the for the splitboard market, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, luckily enough, there are a few existing um shells on the market that are really good for um for split board boots yeah great great so um, then how do you address the uh, the lack of backplate um so there are a couple of things here um that we worked on uh first of all the cuff um it's made of a slightly thinner uh, material than you normally have on a ski boot because on a ski boot you want a stiffer lateral and medial flex um, so that's a big part uh, we're using a type of plastic which is called PU uh, which has some really nice flex properties it's more of a nice elastic damp feel to it uh, compared to a PA which is traditionally used in a lot of ski tour boots Okay. PA is, is probably like a PA boot is probably going to be 100, 150 gram lighter, but it's not going to have the same nice dampening characteristics as a, as a PU boot. Okay. Uh, so that's something that was pretty clear from us from the beginning. And also, PU is very easy to recycle, it has a bit like higher longevity. Uh, so you get a very long lasting boot, and the mm. right qualities are just better. Um, so it's, in our opinion, worth like the 150 grams extra per foot, uh, but you get a yeah, okay. get much better ride qualities out of it. Um, another thing I think a lot of people haven't really tried hard boots is the amount of flex you actually get from the binding. And that's not a fault of the binding. They are designed to actually give you a little bit of flex from side to side. There's, there's a limit to how soft you want to make your boot because you still want to have mm. the benefits for like a stiffer boot for uh, traversing, for example, in ski mode. Ski mode. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you can definitely make it softer. It's beneficial to make it a bit softer, but don't make it overly soft because then you're going to sacrifice uh, the touring ability of the boot. So quite a bit of it is from, uh, from the binding as well. And that's oh, where you're okay. going to find like the, the sweet spot, making the boot softer. 
to soften do and you, combine with the binding. Do you have like a, a sort of walk mode then as opposed to a riding mode? Is there a spring or a lock or? Yeah, so there's, there's a lock that is pretty similar to what you have. Imagine the thing you use to set the forward lean on a soft boot binding. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it's blocking the high back from uh, moving in one direction, but not in the other. Yep. Yeah. That's basically what, we, what we've used. Um, so we have a mechanism like that that sets the okay. forward lean of your cuff or like, compared to the high back, but it's not blocking movement in the other direction. Oh, okay. And the flex on the toe side is then set by the combination of uh, the tongue that we're using um, and the straps. Perhaps, yeah. It's all, uh, and also the, the liner plays a huge part. And uh, we've opted to go for a slightly thicker liner. You get a more plush, like snowboard boot like feel. Um, really good at picking up like the micro vibrations you have. That's another mm. hard thing with. Mm. Traditionally, with the hard boots, you can you can definitely make them softer. It's not so hard of a thing to solve from a product development standpoint. Um, but to build dampening into the whole system is um, that's been more of a challenge. And a part of that is also solved by by the liner we're using. Uh, we've been lucky to um, we're working with the French uh, maker of liners. Uh, which can customize a lot of things. Mm. Also feels good, like we're producing everything uh, in Central Europe. So no long ways of transportation for material or anything. And yeah, just gives us much more options for, for development. Right. Yeah, I saw on the website that you could, um, you know, replace bits. It was all interchangeable. So if something did yeah. break, it was very easy to replace or wear out, you know, which is great. That was like, we were talking about. Also, having to throw away boards, you know, but the, with the boots, you can yeah. you know, restock and regenerate them. Have they been designed, sorry, to, to work with the, the plum binding specifically? Work well or? with the plum binding, work well with the spark binding, works really well with the phantom binding. Um, I've, been, I've been using, so Tal has mainly been using the plum binding for developing the boot. I have switched back and forth between the spark and the phantom binding. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. And it's been important to make sure that it's, you know, you hit the sweet spot of the flex on the boot, that it's going to work with all the different bindings. And yeah, I feel like we've come to a really good point where you have still good rigidity um, for touring. It's really efficient for traversing, but the ride feel is still nice. You have a really progressive flex and in, uh, in all the directions you want the flex. Um, also optimized the, the cuff, uh, since we are designing our own, um, to be slightly softer on the top of the cuff to avoid like calf bites and to get like a nice damp feeling in the whole, in the whole high back or cuff to Get a bit smoother ride feel on when you're on your heel edge, uh, which is also like hard boots can traditionally feel a bit harsh uh, on the heel edge. But, so, um, uh, Spark seller uh, have a producer, uh, Canted Puck, don't mm-hmm. they? Which um, you know they say is you know obviously very good for hard 
boots because it just reduces the amount of bite of the top of the shell into the side of your side of your calf. But are they yeah. are they necessary with this design? Is that something you'd recommend with with these, or can you can you can you get away with flat? Um, you, you you can definitely get away with flats. Um, so that's another thing that you might want to take into consideration when buying bindings. Um, Plum, as I said, which is what Tel has been using the whole time for developing the boot. Uh, they are flat. Spark has three degrees, and I think Phantom has five degrees. Okay. Um, so I'd say canting is not necessary. A lot of people like it. Uh, I'm a big fan of canting. Tal is not such a big fan of canting, but uh, to have the option to go for for both, I think that's a good thing. Like that's uh, the split for the industry is growing, and uh, more options yeah. is just good for the end consumer to have. Yeah, but yeah I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of can, canting. Like it relieves. I also don't think it's a bad thing for soft boots, to be honest. Maybe not as much as three degrees, but a little bit can relieve like some. If you have issues with your joints, for example, your knees um, can relieve some of that pain. So it's, I think it's a thing that can be worth for people like looking into in general. Uh, it's not a not a bad thing. Yeah. So the one thing um, that Andy and I have been talking about a lot, especially as we were chatting with um, John from Phantom in the last podcast, mm -hmm. um, is sizing. So we're in the UK. We're thinking about yeah. getting some hard boots. It's like, right, we could get mm -hmm. Phantom. So they're coming all the way from the US. So the sizing yeah. has got to be spot on. And the same with you guys to an extent, you know, particularly now with bloody Brexit and everything. If we're getting them from France. <laughs> Makes it even harder. Don't start, let's not just start on that. But it is very difficult. And we have to pay yeah. import duty now. So to say, I don't even know how that works if you're returning things and then having them sent out. Well, you might end up getting charged twice. So yeah, I went into a shop just to expand, I went into a, sh a shop at the weekend and they uh, measured my feet and they mm -hmm. put me in some ski touring boots just so I was just trying to get my head around what size I'm on. And yeah. I am always a UK8. Snowball boots is a UK8, like a 42 European. All my mm -hmm. shoes, 42 European. Um, he tried to put me in a pair of size six ski boots, which is like two size sizes too small. It felt bloody awful and i was like yeah so yeah. my my foot is 25 centimeters which is a size okay, six yeah yeah so my foot is small it's just it, but everything mm -hmm. is always an eight i'm always in eights so i'm yeah. like what the hell do i do because <laughs> i can't <laughs> try you, them on in, in your case then you probably have a, a short but pretty wide foot um, um and I there it's too wide. just so it's like um Sizing is always hard. Like I, I'm, I have a similar size foot to you. I have really small feet, uh, but I've always had to downsize a little bit. Um, I'm a 25 and a half. Uh, if you measure my foot, oh. but quite often I've had to go for a 24 and a half shell um, to get the proper fit. So I'm I'm quite I'm quite the opposite to you, but. It, in general, it's really hard to get give advice on uh, on sizing. Uh, one thing we're working on right now is like um, we're letting a lot of people over in uh, France try on our boots right now, and we make sure that they bring their old pair of soft mm. boots mm -hmm. and yep. try to collect as much data as possible. Like, 
okay, we measure your foot. This is the length of your foot. This is the size you ride in soft boots. This is the size you prefer in our boots. And from that, we're by time gonna be able to make a much more detailed sizing guide. Right. And for example, like where we can make a comparison between our boots and Burton, Burton boot, for example. It's like, hey, yep. if you ride Burton and if you have Burton in this size, you should probably go for this, this size in our boots. Yeah. And the difference is gonna be our boot is maybe slightly skinnier on the heel or like whatever it might be, we we're gonna be able to make a more detailed, more detailed uh, advice guide over time. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, like we don't have the most detailed right now. Our main advice is to compare with what size of snowboard boots you've had before. Right. Um, so and, would you uh, say that, because if, you know, if I went into a, um, to try on a new pair of snowball boots, you know, it, they, it wouldn't necessarily, they might feel a bit tight, but they wouldn't necessarily feel painful on the big toe. And no. you wouldn't have to sort of lace them up super, super tight to draw your toe back, which was what no. the guy in the shop was trying to tell me. I mean, mm -hmm. I haven't had, I haven't, I don't ski, that's right. So I haven't put on a pair of ski boots for 30 years. You know, I've always no. been in socks. So I'm coming at it as if I'm a complete novice. So if mm -hmm. I was to try on, your your the disruptive it's called yeah if i was going to try yeah. that on would you suggest that it would be a tighter fit like would my toe be towards the end of the boot and then when i do the boot up it sort of draws it back or should it feel comfortable nah. when i put my foot in uh it's good if it feels you know a little bit tight in the beginning because it is a heat moldable liner um so that's going to adapt to your foot over time but i would not necessarily recommend to have like a lot of pressure on the front of your toes that that's that's never really a good thing um so in general i would say like check what kind of size of snowboard boots you have think of it is this really a right size or would i be better off with a little bit smaller would i be better off with a little bit bigger and then make a decision based on that um it's not a like a one recommendation fits all really because some people just I'm I'm the kind of person I like my snowboard boots to fit like a climbing shoe. Okay. I want it to be uh -huh. really tight. tight. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm also the kind of person like I've, I've always bought like normal snowboard boots in half a half a centimeter or full centimeter shorter than uh, what then you're trying to my foot. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, like the ankle strap on the on the binding, I've always tightened as hard as I can without the ratchet like uh, skipping. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm a person who just wants it as tight as possible, but that's not for everyone. And you just because you switch over to a hard boot, the fitting process isn't that much different. It's not that you need to put it much tighter just because it's a hard boot. It's like, no, you, you need to adapt the size to what your feet are okay with. Um, yeah I mean I was thinking more that because it, this guy was a ski tech I was just trying on some atomics because I was thinking mm -hmm. of, of the phantom slipper and maybe you know, testing it or whatever and um, yeah. so I thought sort of see because that's based on the atomic backland boot the, the base of the slipper and yeah. um, I just so the guy was a ski tech and I think he was just thinking that you know you need to be rammed in and it's got to be super tight because yeah. You're, yeah. you're skiing whereas obviously as a boarder you know, you want you want to transition to a hard boot, so you've got the advantages of that 
that really sharp response when skinning and when moving and no movement of, mm. of the ski and the binding under your feet. But obviously when you're riding, you want it to be a bit more of a relaxed snowboardy feel. So I guess yeah. it's difficult to, to hit both. I mean, it, you feel it's hard done to give an advice that fits all, but I'd say like, if you already know what kind of fits you like through a snowboard boot, don't go away too far from that. Because uh, yeah. then you're probably not going to enjoy it. Yeah. And as I said, it, it's it's very individual. Uh, you like to upsize compared to your the size of your like how when you measure your foot. And I like the downsize, but none yeah. of them are wrong. It's uh, yeah. mm. you have to pick whatever feels comfortable for you and check the size of your snowboard boot and pick hard boots of uh, as similar as possible. Because otherwise, yeah. you're probably not going to like it. Yeah. Maybe I'm just a bit of a pussy because my climbing shoes are quite big too. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're slippers, Pete, aren't they? I've got climbing shoes and if it hurts, I think, no, that can't be right. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody no. else is sort of crying. So I'm at the other end of the spectrum. I've got quite long feet. And my, my concern there is not that I've got long feet, but um, toe overhang on the, you know, on the, on, on the toe side of the board. So... Yeah. I've always looked for soft boots that have the the, the thinnest shell, basically. Yeah. So it's you know, going to add uh, you know less length. Generally speaking, do these um, do do your um, splitboard boots uh, have a you know less at the front than um, than a soft boot? Um, so what I've been riding lately in soft, because I still do ride soft boots every now and then more for, um, comparison, uh, soft boots are still great, especially if you're riding resort. Mm. Uh, so I like to switch back and forth a bit. It also makes sense for like product development to have something to compare to. Otherwise sure. there's something to say about the fact that you get used to whatever you ride. Uh, which is not the best when you're developing something. So you got to make sure to have something to benchmark against. Mm. Uh, so that's what I've been doing. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, North Wave boots just because they fit the type of foot I have. So that's what I've been testing against. And I ride a set, I have a 25 and a half foot. And in North Wave, I ride a 25. So I'm only mm. downsized half a centimeter. So I might okay. downsize more. Um, so I still have like a little bit of room for my toes. They're not like too cramped. Yeah, they're not rounded. Um, yeah, I've got Northwave domains. All right. Moment. So yeah. yeah, no, the length uh, the length of those is uh, is fine, and they're actually not not too long overall in the, no? in, the in the sole. But um, actually, the um, yeah, the disruptive the key equipment boot is actually shorter um, uh -huh. than the Northwave boot I'm riding, not by a lot, but yeah. about five millimeters shorter oh that's noticeable yeah yeah and they're also a little bit bent up and um on the toe and on the heel so uh -huh. yeah it's in general if the size you're picking if, if that's been working uh, as a mm. soft boot it's probably mm. going to work uh, with a disruptive as well it shouldn't really be an okay. issue now, it does sound like we need to get ourselves on a train to france pete and <laughs> where, 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 <laughs> yeah. where, where can we try the boots on in France, uh, Hampus? So in the uh, Chamonix area, uh, uh -huh. that's where my colleague is based. Yeah, um, okay. Is that zero G gonna... in Germany? Unfortunately not. Hopefully okay. our, our plan at the moment is to um, 
do direct sales since the margin is pretty low for a small company. Mm. We don't have the yeah. biggest quantities. Yeah. And we also, for this first year, it's very important for us to have a direct contact with whoever buys the boot. So we're able right. to collect feedback. Yeah. Um, so we're not working with any shops this year, but probably in the future, we'll add a few shops and work that we work closely with to yeah, let cool. people cool. Uh, try them on. I'm just uh, curious about uh, the, the, the future of the... Um... You don't want to call them hard boots, but it's split board boot. Uh, well, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> what's, your term, what's your term for them? Yeah. Uh, the don't call me a hard boot, hard boot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't call me hard boots. <laughs> but I mean, how far can um, can can they penetrate into the, the overall snowboarding boot market, do you think? Because, I mean, everyone, is doing, no matter what they do, are in hard boots. You're yeah. Beginner, you know, doing doing tricks, you're big mountain riding. You're in hard boots. So how far can yeah. hard boots go in, in snowboarding? It's one of those things that I find really hard to predict. All that I'm like really convinced about is that a lot of people who are splitboarding uh, right now who have been on soft boots are probably going to be interested in trying mm. trying it at least. Yeah. Um, and I mean, for the future, yeah, we're looking into maybe making a version of the boot that is a little bit less touring oriented, more resort oriented. It's an amazing boot for carving because you can have a not overly stiff flex, but still very direct power transfer due to how the whole mm -hmm. design of the, the hard shell and the, the binding interface. Um, it's, it's hard to explain, but you, you can have a nice soft, feeling boot that is still that still really transfer the like the power straight to the edge right? it's amazing for carving um also done a lot of resort based uh, free riding works surprisingly well so yeah that's a feel that's going to be interesting to explore as well it's it's not our main focus right now but i think as a resort based boot for the kind of person who likes to go carving do a little bit of free riding but yeah and still good in that the, really uh, well still good in the bar for the opera still that's important of course <laughs> <laughs> i'm back to no, i mean they have to be comfy okay <laughs> i think so now, I, do you still have to uh, walk as if you've got a, a metal bar down your leg <laughs> no not at all i mean like the let's say like the flex of your ankle is uh, in walk mode is it's way softer than a okay. snowboard boot a regular snowboard boot so no i mean it's the sole is hard so still it still feels a little different to walk but uh nah they're super nice and flexible i will it, gotta will say it be, i, I um, enjoy a solid crampon a boot mm. crampon yeah that's another it's another benefit um you have a much safer um locking mechanism on a fully automatic crampon still have to be careful like crampons are one of those things like you gotta really make sure that they fit um but it's like a very repeatable fit and a safer fit than you normally have on a on a soft boot right. and it also climbing in general actually works really well with this type of boot i thought it was going to be weird in the beginning but since it has such a hard sole and quite a sharp edge around it, you can actually step on ledges and stuff that you just couldn't with soft boots. Okay. 
kicking steps yeah. in hard snow works really well. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever been like boot packing up something slightly yeah. icy with the skier. It's like, yeah, yeah, you put the skier in front to actually kick a step for you yeah. <laughs> in your yeah. soft boots. Um, yeah. That's another big benefit. I'd say like the only time it feels a little bit weird or different to walk in this kind of boot is like when you walk over scree is that the english yep. word yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah like loose like rock loose rock and stuff like that um they're not bad but the balance feels a little different that's probably like the only time i feel like a bit now like i really maybe. yeah i had to had to adapt or like it felt a little bit different but in general like you have better better traction and um, you can walk higher up before you really have to put on your crampons and then I, I see on the website that you're doing advanced sales and you've got a bit of a sale yeah. on at the moment, plug, plug. Mm -hmm. um, and you're hoping to get them out in January. Do you, is, is that, yeah. I mean, are you confident that with all of the issues that's going on at the moment with delivery and everything that the boots will be on people's doors by January? Yeah, we are. Um, knock on wood, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no thing is we already have all the materials um at the factory okay um, brilliant so that problem is solved uh it's good for us we're producing pretty small quantities um so we pretty early on managed to make a reservation at the factories like hey make sure to have like enough material for this mm -hmm. amount of boots um so yeah we even hope that we're going to be able to get the boots in uh, in December and ship them out. But it's better to be a bit conservative and say like, hey, January it is. Yeah. If they happen to arrive earlier, that's a big People plus. People are going to be happy. Yeah. yeah. But it's much better to like do it in that way. Like, don't over promise and under deliver. Like, try to do yeah, it yeah. the other way around. Yeah. Um, sure. And then we also like just released um, kind of a guarantee for everyone who's a first year buyer um, so since it's a new product in a couple of years we're probably going to have some kind of update to it uh, yeah but because of how the boot is designed you can actually change all parts so anyone who buys a pair of boots and uh, puts their trust in us this first year uh, gets access to upgrade parts at the 40 percent discount for okay. the next three years so let's say we were to release uh, new design of the tongue or a new buckle or strap or whatever if you're a previous customer from us we're going to make sure that you get price where we don't we don't need to make any money on like spare parts mm. or anything like that so that's a guarantee we want to offer to anyone yeah. you're, you're not envisaging yeah. the shell changing in that time the shell no the shell will, will stay the same that's the that's the one thing which we're like yeah that's that's going to stay the same Right. Um, I mean, that's quite a long time frame, isn't it? Because even, uh, you know, soft boots, uh, there's something on the design changes every year. Yeah, it does. No, but I feel like if you are first, like a buyer during the first year, you, you put a lot of trust into what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, if we release an improvement, we want you as a first time buyer to be able to access that as well. And then this upgrade we it's not a thing that's not our our main business that's not where we're, yeah. where we're gonna yeah. make money that's um, really nice uh yeah really nice customer 
service. Well, and it's it's yeah, brilliant yeah. marketing as well, isn't it? Yeah. Because I think if um, you know, I'm not sure what the saying is, but it's like if you know, if you have a good experience, you tell two people, and if you have a bad experience, you say you tell ten. You know. So, yeah, no, probably. Um, which I mean, that's also another reason we would decide to go like direct to the consumer because we can have a we can have a discussion with every individual customer mm -hmm. um, so we can collect a lot of feedback and yeah make sure that the shopping experience is as smooth as possible so if i, I, mean, uh, I still don't know what size to get yeah if we write you and uh, tell you our um, our current boot sizes and send you a picture of the outline of our foot <laughs> yeah you can direct you us to the right size. <laughs> no, but if you if you send me like, okay, what model of boots have I been riding before and what size in that boot, we should already have enough like data to make a pretty good suggestion. And that's something that we hope to really improve um, throughout the year. Nice. And then of course we have, um, now it's a little bit harder for you guys since you're not in the European Union anymore. Um, oh. But we have like a good return policy as well, where you can can return the boots and like if you realize like hey this this is probably not the right size, as long as you haven't like ridden the boots or heat molded them or anything, mm -hmm. you can send them back and get the correct size. Okay. Yeah, I mean one good thing about um, being in the UK and not being in the in the EU is that we still have to come over to go snowboarding. Oh yeah, right. EU. So, <laughs> you know, we can always on a trip pop into the shops or whatever and get stuff. Yeah, <laughs> or no, pick it if up. You're, if no. you're ever in uh, in the Chamonix area, just let me know and I'll put you in contact with my colleague and uh, we'll make sure that you get to try a pair of boots. And we're probably going to work with uh, Plum, people okay. buying manufacturer yeah. already this yeah. winter. Make sure we have a few test boots over at their location. Um, okay. And then Where someone from? will be, well, they're located a little bit outside of Chamonix, but uh, okay. yeah, Chamonix area. Uh, right. It's probably like still a- Yeah, I've got a trip, a trip to Verbier and a trip to La Clusa lined up. All right. So no, but that's I'm not Verbier, too far from Chamonix. No, that's-, that's Yeah, good. and I'll be in the Chamonix area and maybe La Clusa, Pete, we, maybe we need to talk there. Okay. Um, yeah, end of Feb, end of January, so yeah. All right. Uh, it's nice already having trips mm -hmm. planned. Something to look forward to. Yeah. Oh, we, I've got the whole winter planned. <laughs> yeah, you're busy, guys. Huh? Um, we're going uh, to Kosovo and um, up to Norway as well. And uh, we're going to go touring in uh, Picos de Europa in Spain, northern Spain. All right. Wow. So you have a lot of trips lined up. Yeah, yeah, it's been a last winter was too painful. This year, yeah, <laughs> got a Although, um, it was on the news today that uh, you can't fly direct from Morocco anymore because there's too many cases in the in the UK. So the Moroccans All right. have sort of banned us. So I'm hoping that. Oh yeah. God, I hope my winter doesn't get trashed again. <laughs> no, where sure in, uh, Where in Norway are you going? uh to the lingen okay nice yeah. only been there once but it's such a beautiful area oh Winter it's stunning it's stunning Winter i mean the snow, the snow was kind of hit and miss you know we had a couple of good days mm -hmm. and some really rough days but um but just amazing just you know. landscape and everything oh, yeah, something yeah, yeah. we've, we've skied in uh, lofoten as well uh, mm -hmm. 
it's it's just so incredible you know skiing yeah, skiing, skiing down to the sea uh, yeah yeah nah, that's a cool experience yeah i i went to run a film trip actually once in um, in december so it was on purpose like everything was filmed uh, during the arctic arctic mm. winter arctic night right. Uh, which was really cool. Like first time for me really riding with a headlamp in. I mean, I've done it before, but not really like big mountain technical terrain. Um, Definitely took some getting used to. Like the locals I was riding with, they of course had a lot more experience with that because that's just how they ride. (laughs) When they go riding in December and like January, it's going to be dark. So they're really used to the terrain as well, even with the light on. (laughs) But uh, now we had moonlight moonlight gear awesome. yeah the name of the company that makes the headlamps awesome headlamps like we even had to turn down like the um, the light for it to look good on film like when you go full bright, right, it was just two lights on your car yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you have uh not just moonlight torches but moon moonlight in the sky too or was it overcast we had we had amazing northern lights one night. Oh, like I've never man. really wow. experienced like northern light before. And even the locals were like, this is like the most intense we've ever seen it. Oh, it wow. looked like something out of, uh, I don't know, Harry Potter or something when they're like casting spells or something. It looked looked insane. Um, it was right as we were like, we got up to the peak. It was eight or nine in the evening. So like pitch black, but uh, nice clear skies. Um, and just as we came up, like started doing like the transition and putting the board together, it just like right over her head. Uh, and, started it and uh, managed to get a couple of really nice shots. Um, so that was cool. Good and for the film and a nice experience. Is, is the film out there? Is it on YouTube or something? Can people find it? You can find the trailer. Um, it was released, well, it was probably three years ago, but I think you might still have to pay for it or like it's still like touring around like going to some film oh, festivals yeah. and stuff yeah. so it's not like officially released um if you go and like to my instagram i think there's some pictures from the trip there might even be a trailer up there i, I don't really use instagram too much my right. private one what, but, what's the um, film called through darkness through darkness right yeah okay so people have found it yeah, yeah now one, one of the people like behind the movie is uh, her name is Melissa Brandner. She's from the UK, oh. but lives up in uh, Tromsø, so like okay, close right. to the Lingen Alps. Yep. So she's one of the one of the geniuses behind behind the film. Okay, lovely. Uh, we've got uh, just to plug our website on the backdropjournal.com website. We've got a, a film from our trip to Lofoten, which is really nice okay. if anybody's interested in in seeing that. Yeah, we got oh, one from uh, one from Iceland and one from Lofoten. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's a truly special place up there. I love it. I even my honeymoon was in the Lofoten Islands. So I just yeah, I really oh, love right. moving Norway. Yeah, it's a great place, good spot. Yeah, no, it's very unique nature and the combination of like the ocean and mountains is just it's something different. Yeah, yeah stunning, stunning. Well, uh, have a thing. Thanks so much for taking all this time out the start of your day to chat to us about all this. It's been fantastic. Ah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Yeah.
with the um, the sparks because they just slide onto the chocks. You don't get too much or, or slide onto the pucks. You don't get too much movement. You don't think? No, especially not if you have a Freiburg board with. Uh... <laughs>